please stand with me in honor of the word of God as I read Acts 2, through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains, pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Read New City Catechism question 23 with me. Why must the Redeemer be truly God? That, that because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective, and also that he would be able to bear righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. Man, you may be seated. We'll be looking at today why the Redeemer uh, must be truly God. This scripture text we'll be looking at specifically in uh, verse 24 of Acts chapter 2 said, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. We'll look at Jesus' uh, victory over death, revealing that Jesus truly is God. So the first statement is that because of his divine nature, that because of his divine nature. Did Jesus have a divine nature? Was he truly God? There's a lot of verses that say yes to that. Even in his conception in Luke 1.35, it says he would be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And that what would come from the womb of Mary would be called holy. That is unique. That is uniquely God. That is a unique uh, creation in God. Even Adam was just formed from the dust of the ground. Jesus was formed in the womb of Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, uniquely God from his birth. Colossians uh, 2.9 reveals that all the deity dwelt in Jesus in bodily form. He truly was all that God was in bodily form. Jesus himself proclaimed over and over again many times that he was God, that he was one with God. He was the same as God. I like the revelation of Jesus saying many times, I am. Most of us, in reading our Bible in these different texts, the scriptures, when they're saying who Jesus is, they don't say just, I am. They say, I am he. He's answering, I am he. But Jesus is actually just saying, I am. And that correlation is with the scripture in Exodus 3.14 where God said to Moses, when Moses said, Who shall I say is sending me? What's your name? And God answers Moses and says, I am who I am, he said. 
Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. So when Jesus comes on the scene, one place in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He was saying that he was that I am. He was saying before Abraham came, he was that I am. Jesus was truly saying that he was God. He was one with God. The message came across clear in many instances. In one place in John chapter 10, they actually say this. They say, we're stoning you not because of any deed that you've done, but because you being a man make yourself God. That was what they were after him for. He was saying that he was the I am, and he truly was. So we see that because of his divine nature, what was his divine nature? His divine nature was that he truly was God. He truly was the I am. Teresa and I have listened to music since we first met, and we've listened to a lot of Christian music, which goes back to the beginning of not hymns, Christian music, but Christian music in the popular realm and listening to scripture songs like Maranatha. And there was two brothers that sang, and uh, they were uh, Terry Talbot and John Michael Talbot, and they sang these really just deep scriptural songs, and uh, John Michael uh, sang uh, just kind of deep, Uh, meditative Christian music, but Terry Talbot was a little bit more upbeat, and he sang this song about Jesus being in the garden, and he titled it, I Am He, and I've loved worship leaders. I love our current worship leader, and I know Teresa organizes it, but Mary's really leading that. I loved Mike when he was here. I love music. I've loved all of our worship leaders, Um, and Teresa and I have just been into music loving and so Terry Talbot sings this song about Jesus being in the garden and them coming to arrest him and when the thousands were before him and they said and he says you know who are you seeking and they say Jesus of Nazareth and he says in the written word I am he and Terry Talbot just burst out I am he he said I'm the one you seek I'm the one you want. I'm the one that you have come for. I am. And that's what Jesus said when they said, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. He actually just said, I am. He was answering with that profound reality that this man before them was truly God. His divine nature Our answer says of why our Redeemer must be truly God is that because of his divine nature. The next portion is his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. For sins to be perfect, I mean for his offering and his obedience and suffering, excuse me, that it would be perfect and effective, Jesus truly had to be God because, number one, God is the only one who can truly forgive sins. This was real clear 
in Mark chapter 2. This is another place where Jesus uh, showed that he was divine. And it has to do with the forgiveness of sins. In Mark 2, 5 through 7, we read the word of God says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, you think he's going to say, be healed. But he says, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes sitting there, questioning in their hearts, they didn't even say it out loud. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They were accurate. They were right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the only way you're going to understand that Jesus has the authority to say what he says is if he truly is God. Is his obedience and suffering going to be perfect and effective? Perfect and effective that in the sense that he is God who can forgive sins because all of our sin is ultimately against God. This has always been very profound that David, who sinned and is open in the Bible about his sin, his sin is openly discussed and on display for us to see. How would you like that? Your life to be like King David's, but you've got to have you know, God saying that this is a, a man after my own heart too, the good things that came with that. But in David's specific sin against Bathsheba, and in Psalm 51, where he's repenting of that sin and getting honest with God, he says in verse 4 of Psalm 51, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sin is ultimately against God, and therefore God in Jesus must be God to truly forgive sin. Our Redeemer must truly be God. Leo Schuster in our commentary this week of the New City Catechism said, So why is it important that Jesus, our Redeemer, be truly God? Our sin was committed against God. Only God can forgive a transgression against himself. This is why some of the religious leaders in Jesus' day were horrified when he said he forgave sins. They understood the implications of what he said. How could a mere man forgive the sin we have against God? A mere man can't, but God can. Our Redeemer needed to be truly God. He said Jesus needed to be fully human in order to be our substitute. We looked at that last week. But he needed to be fully God in order for his obedience and suffering to be perfect and for God's justice to be completely and eternally satisfied. His obedience and suffering was perfect and effective. You see, God is perfectly pleased with his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus' birth, he was holy and the angels proclaim Today in the city of David is born unto you a Savior. He was perfectly pleased with the Son and his birth, laid like a, a person in poverty in a manger, born without human recognition, not born in palaces, but born in a manger. He was perfectly pleased with the Son's coming. He was perfectly pleased with his Son 
at his baptism when literally a voice from heaven spoke in Matthew 3, 17, Mark 1, 11, Luke 3, 22, all the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this. Jesus' baptism, a voice coming from heaven and saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. My beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He's pleased with Jesus at his baptism. What is it? His obedience is perfect. That's why. His obedience is perfect and effective. And then he takes with them Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. Luke 9 records it this way. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, or again, my beloved, my chosen one. Listen to him. God spoke out of heaven saying, This was his son. He was the obedient one. His obedience was perfect. Not like Mo- unlike Moses and Elijah, great though they were. God was establishing his son as the perfect one, the obedient one who was above Moses and Elijah. Listen to him. We see again in John 12, this voice speaking out from heaven in John 12, 28, where Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. He's beginning to prepare for his own crucifixion. And he said, a voice came out from heaven and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. This is Jesus whose perfect obedience and suffering would be the effective sacrifice we all needed. We needed our Redeemer to be truly God. In Hebrews 7, it confirms this in verses 26 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, yes, Jesus was holy, innocent, yes, he was innocent, unstained, yes, that perfect Lamb of God, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He doesn't have that need, right? Because he has no sin to offer up a sacrifice for his sins first. It says since he did this once for all when he offered up himself, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Yes, he was made perfect forever, and he is the only one whose obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. It goes on to say in Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He is perfect, the perfect one, and his perfect obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective to make you perfect and effective before God. Pretty mind-blowing. Pretty amazing. That is amazing grace, isn't it? That is profound. The catechism answer goes on and says, and also that he would able be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin. This is a difficult subject. A lot of people don't like to talk about it. Mary prayed about it today. 
about Jesus bearing the righteous anger of God against himself. It's in Scripture. When Jesus is praying in the garden, he's saying, remove this cup from me. What is he saying to remove this cup from him? He's saying, remove the cup of your wrath. I'm drinking the cup of your wrath upon me. This is seen out and bared out in many scriptures about the cup of God's wrath being poured out. Jesus is drinking from it. He is a willing participant. It's not easy. He's saying, let this cup pass from me three times. But he's saying, not my will, but your will be done. Remove this cup. But divine wrath can only be satisfied in a Redeemer who is truly God. The Bible and Scripture in 1 John 2, 2 says He is the propitiation. Now, I know a lot of us don't might maybe like that word. In fact, a lot of Bible translators don't like it because of what it means. It means to uh, satisfy, to appease God. They don't like that word because they don't like the fact that God is wrathful and that His wrath needs to be appeased or satisfied. So they change it into more subtle words a lot of times. But the simple best meaning is propitiation and that word is used in other places. In the Bible, in Romans 3, after it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus Verse 25 of chapter 3, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. See, he uses that word again, put forth his son as a propitiation. He already used redemption. You can't use that word again. It is a different word. And this word means to satisfy. To satisfy what by his blood? To satisfy the wrath of God. And only a redeemer who is truly God could do that. Romans 5 puts it very clearly in verse 9. It says, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. That's what you're saved from. You're saved from the wrath of God. That's why we announce the gospel every morning, saved from the wrath of God into peace with God. It's a part of the good news of the gospel. Paul in the writings of Ephesians Chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 says, We were by nature children of wrath. We were by nature children of wrath. We're born into sin, born into the wrath of God upon us. And he says, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of us were children of wrath. Why? Because we were all sinners. We all bore the wrath of God against sin. The good news in Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Dead in our trespasses. What were we? By nature, children of wrath. Dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And we put that up in signs. By grace alone are we saved. Our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, was truly God to bear our sin that was against God and bear God's just and righteous wrath against our sin. We need a Redeemer who is truly God. Can you say amen? Anybody? Why must the Redeemer be truly God? That because of His divine nature, we looked at that, His obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. 
We looked at that. And also would be able to bear the righteous anger of God. We looked at that against sin. And yet overcome death. And yet overcome death. That's the emphasis in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. This is after the day of Pentecost when uh, the fire of God fell and they're speaking in tongues and people are asking questions, what's happening here? And Peter, who's always running and scared and uh, three times denies that he even knows Jesus, is now all of a sudden emboldened by the Holy Spirit to stand up and to speak and to preach one of the greatest sermons ever in Acts chapter 2. And his emphasis As we read the whole text today are on Jesus' perfect life, what he went about doing. It's about his perfect death that satisfied his his obedience and going to the cross satisfied God. But Peter's true emphasis in which he goes into in great depth is on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he starts it in verse 24 that we have as our answer to this catechism basic doctrine question of why our Redeemer must be truly God. It's because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Him. We talked about some of this. Why couldn't death keep its hold on Him? And there are many reasons and avenues that we can look at and delve into. One is His divine person. Because He was a divine person, He was sinless. And therefore, death could have no victory over him. Though the scripture said the wages of sin is death, Jesus died because he was made sin for us. Now that's different than committing sin. Isaiah prophesied in, verse, in chapter 53 about this Messiah, this suffering servant. And in verse 8, Isaiah asked, Who's considered? We're considering right now. We're thinking right now. We're considering right now. We're thinking. Who has considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? This is that this Messiah, this suffering servant, would die. Isaiah goes on to say, Stricken for the transgression of my people. Who's considered that? That you would be stricken not for your own transgression, God is saying, but you would be stricken for the transgression of my people. And in verse 9 of Isaiah 53, he says, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Does that sound familiar? It's because we read it. This is what Peter is commenting on this morning. Both Teresa read it and William read it. In 1 Peter 2, 22, it says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. That's right out of Isaiah 53, 9. And yet, Jesus overcame overcame death. Not sinning. He didn't sin. It's clear in Isaiah. But he was stricken for others. It was not his own sin that he was stricken for. Stricken for. But it was the sins of God's people. God says it it was before my people that he would be stricken. And Peter confirms that. He committed no sin, and yet 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree. He bore them. A perfect, obedient son of God, truly God, bearing the wrath of God, 
bearing our sins in his body on that tree, yet having committed no sin himself and neither deceit found in his mouth. Paul confirms this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin. So he wasn't sin. He wasn't a sinner. He hadn't committed any sin. God was never a sinner. God never committed any sin. Jesus never committed any sin. But he was made to be sin who knew no sin. You see that he never knew sin. He never had a relationship with sin. He was tempted in all ways like us and yet without sin so this made him that perfect and effective sacrifice for our sins he paid the price for our sin peter is saying bearing in his own body our sin yet having not committed any sin himself he paid the price and discharged the debt so it was impossible to be held by death This is what Jesus accomplished. I know this is hard to understand. C.S. Lewis, in writing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, was trying to explain to his children. He basically started that book just wanting to explain, rather than a high-up, lofty way of the theology of Jesus not being able to be held by death. He wanted to explain to his kids and give them this Christmas gift, writing this book. For his family, for his children. And in it, there's these two girls. And Aslan, representing Christ, is crucified on this stone table, like we sing about, bound. And they watch from a distance as he's put to death. In a deep grief, they're wandering off. And Aslan approaches them, resurrected now. And And they're so excited and they're so elated, but they say, but what does it all mean? What does this resurrection mean? What does it mean that you're back alive again? And Susan asked that question when they were somewhat calmer. It means, says Aslan, and he goes on to explain what it means, and he says, If this witch, the witch that killed him representing the devil, would have known that when a willing victim, that's Aslan, went willingly to that stone table, just like Jesus went willingly to the cross. No man took his life from him. He went willingly. When a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack. And death itself would start working backwards. That is, death could not hold him. Death didn't have any legal just right to hold a person who had never sinned but was killed in a traitor's stead. The stone table represents the law of God, the curse of the law of God, just like the tree, the cross, represents the curse of the law. What do you mean, Bobby? I mean Galatians 3. Verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Why are they under a curse if they're relying on the law to be made righteous? Because the word says, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. We looked at this when we studied all of the questions and answers concerning the law. The law demands perfection. 
It demands abiding by all things written in the book. And there was a curse to that because nobody could keep all things written in the law. And so what does it point us to? Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He became that curse of that failure to be able to please God by keeping His law. So Jesus' perfect obedience was a perfect sacrifice for us. He committed no sin, yet He bore our sin. But death never had any legal right to keep Him. The stone table was cracked. The power of death was cracked because it could not have authority to hold Jesus. That's Peter is saying it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. Impossible. The other point is that his divine power, death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't hold him because Jesus was the resurrection and the life. Remember this at the death of Lazarus. And Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the power of the resurrection. I am the power of life. I have the power over life and death. And he comes and he speaks those words to Lazarus, come forth. And he comes forth victoriously. As 1 Corinthians 15, 54 says that Jesus did fully. That death would be swallowed up in victory. And we see once again that in that explanation of 1 Corinthians 15, 54, we see in verse 56 that it said that the power, the power of sin is the law. This is what he became a curse for. The power to hold him in death was the law. But Jesus completely, fully satisfied God in keeping the law. And then when he died for us traitors, that stone table was cracked. When he died upon the cursed tree and became a curse for us, the curse of the law was broken forever in Jesus because he fully satisfied the Father. And death no longer could hold him. Death is swallowed up in the victory of Jesus' perfect obedience. Death no longer has a victory and the grave no longer, death no longer has a sting and grave no longer has the victory. The inevitable end of a sinful life is death. Consequently, a person who denies Christ's eternal nature looks toward a void future. Without Jesus, there is no hope of victory over death. I like some atheists because some atheists actually get real and actually look at the end of their atheism. And Bertrand Russell is one of those atheists. And he sees that without Christ, and when he looks at just life itself, and that death is the inevitable end of his life, he says this, a famous atheistic philosopher, Bertrand Russell. He offers this sad description of such hopelessness. He says, brief and powerless is man's life. On his and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls, pitiless and dark. And that's all that is left for anybody that doesn't have their victory over death in Jesus is a p- 
pitiless, dark end to everything they might want to try to achieve in this life. Death answers, it's all meaningless if you do not have Christ. And I like somebody that can at least admit that. They're not coming to Jesus yet, but they admit that life is meaningless without victory over death. Death makes everything end, everything dark, and everything hopeless. And if you don't got a hope over that, you're lost. So religions offer hope. They offer a spiritual renewal in reincarnation, or they offer a spiritual somehow resurrection. But you see, when Aslan rose from the dead, C.S. Lewis makes this very clear, Lucy and Susie could feel his breath upon them. And they could smell his mane that had grown back in all of its glory. Yes, these are the images that Jesus gives us with his disciples after his resurrection in Luke 24, 39. See my hands and feet, that is I myself. I myself, not some ghost. For a spirit, Jesus goes on to say, he says, touch me, see me, feel me, smell me. He didn't say that, but I'm just adding that. That's what C.S. Lewis says. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. See, only Christianity is unique in that we will be raised a glorified body, victorious over death. We will give each other hugs forever. We will smell each other. I'll sniff your perfumed hair and I'll hug you as my brothers and sisters in all glory and purity without any sin tainting that hug whatsoever. You see, Jesus has provided a great victory over death. And he truly had to be our redeemer that was truly God to give us that victory. And you see, Peter is saying this in Acts 2. He's saying that his divine person, his divine power, was victorious over death, and he's saying it was because of his divine promise. See, Peter goes on in preaching in Acts 2.24 after he says, For David says concerning him, in our text we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who you know is this man, Jesus of Nazareth, He's truly God. He's the truly one that he is saying it was impossible for death to hold him down because of the divine promise in God's word. All through it, there is divine promises that the Messiah would not be kept in death, that death would not hold him. And so Peter is using that argument that his divine promise said that he wouldn't be And in verse 25, he says, For David says concerning him, this is why it was impossible for death to hold him, because David says concerning him, and he's quoting a psalm. He's quoting the promise in Scripture. And he says in Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, at at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. Verse 27 He's quoting from Psalm 16. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. What does that mean? Will not abandon him to Sheol, to the grave, to let the grave hold him. He would be victorious over that grave. He wouldn't abandon him so long that he would see corruption. That his flesh would begin to break down in corruption. 
You have known, made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So Peter quotes that scripture. He quotes that divine promise in God. And he says, brothers, now he's going to expound on it. He's going to open up the scripture. That's what preaching is. It's opening up what the scripture's saying and saying, and this is what the scriptures mean. And Peter does that. He says, brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, because they might be thinking, is this David? David's writing this psalm. Is David talking about himself? He says, no. I, with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. At that time, they knew where his tomb was. His body saw corruption, saying, it's not David. Who is it? Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his ascendants on his throne. See, he had promised that. It was his divine promise. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades. He was not abandoned to Sheol. He was not abandoned to the grave. And his flesh did not see corruption. This Jesus, that's who he's talking about. This Jesus God raised up. And from that, we are all witnesses. We're witnesses to his resurrection. That death, it was impossible for death to hold him because of his divine promise. And in fact, Jesus made promises himself. He said, destroy this body or destroy this temple. They thought it was the temple. (laughs) And he said, and in three days I'll rise it up. And then right after that in John chapter 2 he says, and he was talking about the temple of his body. So I was kind of previously interpreting it for you when he was saying his body. But he was saying this temple, destroy it. And in three days I'll raise it. So he promised it. So he's going to deliver on his word. God promised it through the prophet David. David was being a prophet when he said his body would not be abandoned and so we see all, all through there that Jesus would not be abandoned to the grave, but that he would rise victorious. And because God's word said it, it will happen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever, and it will not be changed, it will not be broken, and it will never fail. It will never fade. The word of God, his promise, and Peter is saying, he said he would do it, and he did it. He had a divine promise in his word, and he delivered on that promise that he wouldn't abandon his soul to Sheol, to Hades, and he didn't. He had to rise from the grave for no other reason than that alone. That's the reason Peter emphasizes in this text. Jesus did all this because of his divine purpose. His divine purpose was to redeem a people for himself on this earth. He kept that in front of him, this divine purpose that he had in being truly human and truly God. And being truly God, he alone was able to make a people for himself to dwell on this earth with him forever. John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. For were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am There you may be also. Do you want to be with Jesus? You want to be with him forever? That's his divine promise. You will be. Our Redeemer is truly God. He said it. I believe it. I believe it because he said it. And I know and I know and I know that's going to be true.
That's another Russ Taft song. He was in the early 80s. Music, once again. Matthew 28, Jesus said, after he gives this great word, final word, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Victorious over death, the resurrected Jesus, all authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, look, feel, touch, smell him, hear what he has to say, why you will accomplish his divine purpose, because I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. He's with us, saints. And no demon from hell, nothing can separate us from the love of God. You know, when Paul says that in Romans 8, the greatest chapter ever written in the Bible, and he gets down to the last verse, and he says, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You know what the first thing he says is that won't separate you? Death. Death will not separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You will live if you believe in him. And if you don't believe in him, it's a dark, pitiless, no hope type of world. Because he alone was our redeemer who was truly God. And he alone is our redeemer. That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. And also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. Can you say amen? Amen. God raised him up because it was impossible for death to hold him. We're going to take communion together.